It's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to bring together some of the award-winning journalists on the East End to do a bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Southampton, what did I, I said Southampton, the East Hampton Press, and Sag Harbor Express and the website 27east.com. Bill Sutton, my co-host, is off this week, but we have a terrific panel, which includes Beth Young, who is the editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Hello. We have uh, Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. And we have J.D. Allen, who's the managing editor at WSHU and also the bureau chief for the station's Long Island News Bureau. How are you doing, J.D.? Hey, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. So uh, I want to talk, I want to start, Beth, let's talk about um, Sag Harbor, which this week may have sort of dodged a bullet. Um, It's still sort of a developing story, but what had happened was uh, very kind of surreptitiously Blade, the uh, company that, that runs a lot of the helicopters that go in and out of East Hampton Airport and bring people back and forth from the city. Uh, on their website, they started to debut a new uh, offering and an ad uh, publicizing it, which was seaplanes directly to Sag Harbor. And actually, they talk about it being to the Sag Harbor airport, which, of course, Sag Harbor doesn't have an airport. <laughs> but but what, what they were doing was using these seaplanes to land on the bay uh, outside of the village's um, restrictions uh, taxi into a float, you know, a dock that's floating out there, and then uh, bring people in by uh, powerboat. Not well received in Sag Harbor, where the mayor <laughs> and and uh, others spoke up. And now apparently Blade has agreed to sort of pull back a little bit. But this was sort of a, a possibility all along, right? Whether this is Blade says this was basically their backup plan for if East Hampton Airport. Uh, severely limited the number of flights in and out of the airport, which they want to do, but the courts have held up for the moment. But this this was si- kind of on the table as a possibility all along, right? Yeah, well, I mean, seaplanes sea have been on the back burner for a whole bunch of years out here. Um, and, you know, it, once it becomes uh, not, not necessarily cost effective, but like the only legal option, you know, you got to go to the right jurisdiction to get these loopholes uh, closed up. I know there's a hotel up on the North Fork that recently advertised that it was accessible by um, by seaplanes. So it's definitely become a it's it's been an issue for years, but I mean, we haven't seen the kind of traffic we could see. And when people are going to see those seaplanes out there, they're going to really be shocked. Let me ask you, and, and I'm, I'm I'm seriously asking this. I'm, I'm pretty naive about this, but right. is is that better than helicopters? Are they are they less noisy? Are they less intrusive in some way? Well, um, they they have a potential for greater conflict with marine vessels. You know, I mean, the the Peconic Bay is not a huge water body and there are some very narrow stretches in the Peconic Bay. So um, uh, I don't know how well regulated that is for seaplanes. and, you know, there's certainly like on a holiday, this past holiday weekend, the water was full, full of kayakers, full of recreational boaters. I don't know how you regulate that. Um, and I think that's really a gray area that a lot of people um, have to figure out quickly. And I, you know, they have seaplanes that are coming out on. I mean, we this is not a new phenomenon. Seaplanes do land uh, out this way from yeah, J- Jimmy Buffett's been bringing a seaplane to Sag Harbor for years. And I mean, um, I think that I think that there have been some attempts to sort of regulate that traffic a little bit too, right? I think the village stepped up its enforcement to try and discourage the use of seaplanes for private properties yeah. up up around there. Right. Yeah. But the, their jurisdiction only goes out so far. I mean, if they're going to a float. That's uh, an end run around that. I mean, you got a little Boston Whaler, you can go out and pick some people up at that float. Well, it's funny from, because the the from ad that, from their point of view, the ad yeah. that Blade ran was uh, was pretty stylized, and it, it <laughs> I have to tell you, if I'm a young person um, who wants to make the trip out from the city, 
Uh, it's less than an hour by seaplane, and they they show they show that their service includes this sort of luxurious motorboat bringing people into Long Wharf, which, by the way, they don't have the right to do yet. And also, and maybe the dinghy dock on Long Wharf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and then being picked up by a fairly luxury automobile and and moved around, you know and. You know, if you've got nine hundred dollars each way, I, I guess you know that's what it costs. It's like eight, it was eight hundred ninety one dollars, but they had um, flights planned on a fairly regular basis. So, but where do those seaplanes fly out of on the new on the? I mean, they can't fly out of a heliport. Yeah, I believe it's which was West Twenty Third Street is where uh, Blade has a waterfront uh, facility down there. Okay. It's, is where they were flying out of, but, but J- JD, this, this has been a topic of conversation about East Hampton airport. Of course, what just briefly to recap, the town was planning to shut down the airport and reopen as a private facility in order to be able to limit uh, the number of flights in and out. And they were set to do that last month, but a court stepped in and said they couldn't do it. So they're in sort of this limbo now where they're operating uh, under the old conditions, even though their column letters have changed and there are some other changes, uh, but the town wants to limit the number of flights. But all along, the conversation has been, if you do that, you're going to push a lot of that demand and a lot of that traffic to other facilities, whether it's Montauk Airport, uh, Gabreski in West Hampton, uh, the helipad in on Meadow Lane in Southampton Village, which is a public facility. And this was always sort of down the bottom of the list of ideas was, hey, maybe they'll start landing seaplanes on the waters around uh, the the villages and hamlets. But that looks like one of the one of the definite options they're looking at. I think what you're seeing is that these companies have been aware that there could be changes down the line. And with East Hampton moving and moving fast, and and that's caused you know issues in its own. Um, these companies have had to now uh, really figure out what their new plan was going to be. And so they're kind of throwing everything at the wall. Um, and the seaplanes are just one of the few things that we could see in terms of different traffic um, to the East End. And that could mean increased uh, traffic to other uh, smaller airports on the east end. Um, it could mean, um, you know, uh, I, I would wonder also what the changes to our uh, docks are going to look like if you have folks, more folks uh, that are already coming to an already busy harbor fronts on the east end. Um, you know, the trade parade is not going to be exclusive uh, to 27 East at this point. Yeah, this isn't, uh, you know, it's worth pointing out that there's apparently a second company that's looking to do something similar with seaplanes in Sag Harbor. Uh, and the village is taking steps now to try and just put a halt to that. But, you know, Beth, this this is happening at a time when Sag Harbor is also debating the idea of a ferry between uh, Sag Harbor and Greenport. And even that has has raised some hackles in Sag Harbor. They're worried about uh, the, the, the waterfront and, and having it become a little, little more commercialized. Yeah. And, um, Greenport isn't on board with that plan either. Um, they're still trying to figure out a place where they want them to dock. Um, you know, which is interesting because Greenport has, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, mega yachts that you used to only see in Sag Harbor are, are now in Greenport. So, I mean, I, I don't understand why Greenport can have as many mega yachts as Sag Harbor and not have a passenger ferry, but um, that's kind of being held up uh, and the, on that end as well. It was fairly popular when they when they ran the test run 10 years ago, right? Yeah, um, it, it was. Um, I uh, I think they believe they can make a living doing it. Um, it might take a little while. Uh, it's and certainly so much- an expensive endeavor. And so much has changed, though, between now and then. I mean, the the, the amount of uh, visitors and the amount of uh, residents has exploded uh, in comparison. Um, and it it's interesting that a lot of these conversations have really only kicked up. Um, I mean, t- topic wise, we've been talking about them for years, but really this this push um, has only 
become realized since East Hampton started to draw the line earlier this year in January. And I wonder um, if other local communities did not recognize what the, the, the changing demographic for their tourism was going to look like this upcoming summer. Um, and so this summer might be a very confusing summer for for a lot of folks coming out or a lot of residents, um, um, you know, dealing with different ways that they're, you know, this is the summer uh, uh, where we're, we're sort of post COVID, right? This this summer might be the most normal summer since 2019 in in, in some ways, um, but it will be very unusual uh, if we rope in uh, transportation issues. You know, uh, I mean, you have a lot of different things between the South Fork commuter rail not running that extra ride. You have the possibility of um, additional ferries, um, but also now seaplanes and still nothing has changed with the trade parade. And I mean, and East Hampton Airport, it's all of these smaller um, localized issues that are going to reverberate much further than, you know, just where they're talked about. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a true or false question. All of this traffic from Blade and whether it's by seaplane or helicopter is not a significant number as far as limiting the, the, the travel out from the city on uh, weekends. I, I, do, you, do you agree with that or no? And anybody? <laughs> um, I mean, my personal feeling is you know the the traffic from people coming out here for the weekends is nothing compared to the traffic of people just in the trades trying to get out to work on a weekday morning. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah, and they're not taking seaplanes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but you're not going to bring your your chaps out to the Hamptons in a seaplane. <laughs> but but there is a clear relationship between the two. If you have folks yeah. that are coming out by seaplane that are coming to their to their second homes or third or whatever out here, yeah. that means that they're going to need the additional staff to come out to keep that house running. So. Yeah. Um, in some ways, yeah, it is drawing traffic out, whether or not it's a significant bump. Um, you know, for for uh, one or two lanes on either direction, yeah, that's a, that's a significant bump. Mm. How, how, how many people actually travel by helicopter? I mean, body counts, like by helicopter or in this case, seaplanes, if that's what it comes to. Um, and as far as the people who are in that, let's say, I don't know, I was the upper echelon. I don't know, like, the, um, <laughs> you know, the people that, with the mansions that they have. They don't they only come to them sometimes, but they've got people working there, keeping them up and running all the time, whether they're there or not. Um, yeah. My husband was a contractor for many years and could not get over, you know, he was hired to do work here and there and homes that were, you know, kind of nothing but a caretaker and the staff there who, you know, and they were kept open with their 12 bathrooms, not to get into the sewer yeah. talk, but you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I, does anybody really have a head count on how many people travel? I'm sure Jim Brundage does. Yeah. yeah, I don't have it in front of me. I know that, that you get Peter Booty on the horn. <laughs> okay, certainly, certainly the numbers have increased in the last ten yeah. years and and have steadily gone up. And and uh, we had a story this week that traffic at the airport this year over Memorial Day weekend was actually up from last year. So the town's efforts so far have been put on hold, and and it demonstrates that even even. You know, though the plan was to close down the airport and reopen with these limited flights, everybody was ready to go for Memorial Day weekend and they all still came. So it's, a you yeah. know, and, and, and the people who live in the flight path can tell you it's a fairly steady uh, stream. Yeah. And and I was at the Sheltair terminal at Gabreski Friday afternoon and I've never seen it so busy there. And that's a different airport. So people are coming out. Like, all the, who would handle public safety with seaplanes coming into wherever they're going to land in the water. Uh, like whose jurisdiction is that? It's a great How question you... because I think the planes are landing sort of outside the village and the, the county's jurisdictions in those waters. I think they, they are finding sort of a, 
a, a spot. And I, I don't, I have to confess, I, I'm not that familiar with the rules as far as how that goes, but I know that the village does limit that kind of thing. And these planes would land further out so that then they could taxi into this floating, uh, this floating, uh, what would you call it? It's a dock that basically just allows people to transfer from the plane to a boat to get to the to the, to the <laughs> land. So. A, swim, a swim platform. You know, yes. I, it, it strikes me that there's like a real issue with that because there's plenty of watercraft on the bays yeah. in the summer. And some really um, small watercraft. And, out there. Yeah. And number one and number two, like, is that really like a real... Like, uh, it's one thing getting in a helicopter on a, at a heliport and flying to an, a, an airport and then getting in your limo or whatever. Um, and it's another thing to take a seaplane that lands and then get out onto a floating dock and then get from there onto a boat to another dock. Like, are people going to be really game to do that? I wonder. Like, maybe once to, for the novelty of it, but... I don't know. If it's for nine hundred dollars, it's it seems like uh, you can really impress yeah. your date with that. I guess, yeah. But and you still, have a new date every weekend. Nobody, <laughs> nope, somebody needs to tell them they're still probably forty-five minutes from Montauk at that point. So yeah, I don't, you still have to don't, sit in traffic. don't tell Montauk. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Uh, so this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. <laughs> I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. My panelists today, JD Allen from WSH. You, Beth Young from the East End Beacon, and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. So let's uh, let's talk about Riverside. Go to the other side of, of the region, and uh, there's some news out of Riverside. This is this is something that's been discussed for years and years and years. Denise, um, we're going to start to see maybe some progress on a first step towards a redevelopment of uh, Riverside. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, the, the Re Riverside Revitalization Plan, as you know, uh, and this is about as far from the uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous as one can get, but um, they, they, the plan calls for a um, kind of fairly intense mixed-use redevelopment of the Riverside Hamlet, which is uh, just across the river from downtown Riverhead. And a place that most a lot of people who go to Southampton you know, drive through um, on their way out to the Hamptons. Um, it's a very um, it's a beleaguered area. It's uh, one of the lowest uh, uh, median incomes on Long Island. Um, it's got a lot of problems. And it has a waterfront McDonald's. It has a waterfront McDonald's where you can pull up by boat and dock and get on and get your Big Mac. <laughs> um, and it's actually a pretty nice place to watch what's going on in the river, which is sometimes interesting. Um, but um, the the Riverside, uh, in order for this to happen, in order for this higher density development to happen there, um, they need to have uh, some form of community sewage sewage treatment. And um, because the health department regulations, it's right by the water, you know, they, they need to have a sewage treatment plant basically before anything can really happen. So this was adopted in 2015. It's seven years later now almost. Um, and, um, you know, what's been what happens? Like people have begin, began to ask, like, is anything really ever going to happen there? Um, but they've been tr working on trying to figure out how to make how to make the sewer plant happen. They've been they I mean, the town has purchased property. Um, they've got the site for the plant itself. They purchased property for what they call constructed wetlands, because, you know, when you treat sewage, you end up with sludge and effluent. And the effluent is like the liquid waste that they treat basically to the standards of drinking water nowadays. But it can't be discharged directly to a, a water body now. Um, so they're going to build... I've always found that interesting, Denise, that, that the, the goal was, hey, our effluent, we're able to uh, reduce it down to the level of drinking water. Um, but that's still that's still not clean enough for discharge into some of those wetlands areas. It's still too high. Uh, some of the levels are still too high. Uh, environmentalists say that drinking water standards aren't really uh up to the level that they Strict need to be enough. Up. Yeah. yeah. As per, particularly with regard to nitrogen. So mm -hmm. the plan for this is to uh, build these wetlands, artificial wetlands, uh, constructed wetlands, whatever you want to call them, and then discharge the effluent, pipe, you know, pipe it across 24 to this, this area that was a dredge spoil 
back in the bad old days, dumping ground when they dredged the river and they dumped it. It's like a moonscape there. So they're going to create new wetlands there and filter this effluent through those wetlands. And then it eventually goes into groundwater and eventually uh, into the surface water. So that's the plan. They've got property in place. They've got, they say they've got financing lined up through the Environmental Facilities Corporation, a state uh, entity. Um, this EFC, as it's called, paid for this like value engineering study of the um, the conceptual plan that the town that the town paid to have done. So I mean, they've been working on this. It's not you know, but it um, all starts with the sewers, right? You have to have well, the sewers before anything can happen. Yeah, but I mean, they've been working on the plan. They've got they have hired Nelson and Pope to do the plan for the sewer plant, where the mains are going to go, where the pump stations are going to go. The whole you know works the whole project, but. Uh, and they purchase property. They've got the they've got the financing lined up, zero interest for thirty years. Not a bad deal. And now they need to actually establish legally establish the boundaries of the sewer district. Where is it going to be? What properties are going to be within it? And then you know eventually, when it is built, new construction and and new additions and things like of that nature, people are going to be mandated to hook up to the sewer treatment plant. And they're going to have to pay not only uh, a tax, but uh, usage fees, I think. So, you know, the first people who are hooked up are have the potential to be hit pretty hard with costs. Yeah. Right. And it's an it's an area where people you know can least afford it. I mean, uh, there's a couple of mobile home parks in there. It's like, you know, people are not are not well off necessarily. And but in order to get the new development in, they need the sewer plant. And in order to have a sewer plant function and function well enough, right? They need the flow. <laughs> so it's like, you know, chicken, meat, egg, you know, what, what happens here? What comes Just a first? whole, a whole series very, of chicken, chickens and eggs, basically. Very, very tricky, very tricky situation. So, I mean, they really have been working on it. I was impressed by how much work got done and what the, how the discussion was. They, um, representatives of the town, deputy supervisor Zappone and, um, the, the town planner, Janice Shear, uh, came to, uh, a, a meeting with uh, some community residents, an uh, economic development committee at uh, the Crohan Center uh, a couple weeks ago and um, and laid this all out. Um, it's, um, you know, it's it's a big undertaking, but they seem to they're really giving it a serious, you know, a serious show. Some progress. Yeah. Beth, Beth, this is an area you know intimately. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, that needs to be said here is part of what's driving this is that's an area that has been largely uh, it missed the development craze in the sense that um, it's not one of the areas that became where values, house values started to soar and there was a lot of demand to move into, partly because of the infrastructure. But, but you know, it's just there are only so many places left to sort of redevelop. Right. And, and this is one of them. It's 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 a beautiful stretch there and, and lots of waterfront land and, and some great neighborhoods. Uh, there's a lot of potential on Riverside. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's 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 really stunning these days because there's been so much development in downtown Riverhead to to see how the other side of the river has languished as Riverhead has, you know, whatever you feel about five story buildings, which um, is a subject of debate. But that hasn't happened on the other side of the river. And it's totally because of this um, sewer issue. And um you know, for a long time, the Riverside Rediscovered Group was meeting. It was a community group formed by the um, master developer that Southampton Town hired um, to, to, to kind of get rally the community around this. And um, and they were meeting for, for many, many years. They had a very, really engaged uh, coordinator who was really helping. She she left. But um, but it's it, since the pandemic, they really haven't been able to have these community meetings and i think that's kind of led to a feeling in the community that that uh this might never happen and you know it's it's been promised for decades um but this is a real concrete step in the right there in 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 the in the direction of getting this off the ground but i you know it's it's sad to walk through riverside these days i mean it, it's it's it used to be dangerous now it's more sad um you know when i was a kid we used to go to the riverboat diner on the circle there now there's a new a relatively new building built by palowski i don't know how i don't know if um if he's gotten a lot of tenants for that building it's a, a huge building right on the circle um and that's because you know none of the other 
properties around it have really been developed. So it'll change dramatically if this comes through. Um, I'm sure there are a lot. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, right, right up uh, in in your uh, wheelhouse, Beth, like, you know, there's a real environmental issue here with, uh, you know, the the areas, wetlands and the water bodies and creeks and everything, because there are a lot of older um, like what used to be called bungalows that have been rehabilitated or converted into um, into year round residence. A lot of these are rental homes. Um, you know, there are these mobile home parks. They've got old and I dare say, in a lot of cases, failing cesspools that don't even have they you know, septic tanks and things like yeah, that. that. So those mobile home parks back up to the river. Yeah. Um, so there's like, you know, I mean, yeah. a real important environmental interest in getting sewage treatment of some kind, whether it's, you know, the com- a community IA system or something or, you know, to make to, to help address that because it's it's needed. I mean, you want to talk about nitrogen leaching into groundwater in the river. Uh, you know, it's happening there. Yeah, um, I mean, that's that's some of those communities, some of the properties up there have cesspools in the water table, right? And, oh. and there's basically failing cesspools that are just emptying uh, waste into into the, the waterways. Yeah, there's a big hole in my backyard right now. It's it's right at the foot. You can see the water leaching in right at the bottom of the cesspool. So, and you're, you know, you're I'm doing, sure there are people closer. You're you doing the right thing. why that's happening. Yeah, you're doing oh, the right we're thing, putting right? in an IA system as we speak. That's why I'm, I'm out here on the edge of the beautiful Peconic Bay. You can see it on the radio, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can hear the birds though we hear the shorebirds it, it's uh it's an it's an intense uh undertaking to to get all these properties sewer but or, or in with with advanced septic treatment um we should do uh, just a whole show about that sometime just and, and the fact, about going through that process because i've yeah, heard it can be daunting and there's a real you know there's a real social justice issue, issue here too because you know all these properties that are um, part of the problem at the moment belong to people who can't are you know there's huge disparities in wealth out here and, 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 and people who live here cannot afford to to do these upgrades and many of the most vulnerable people that live right there on the shoreline too are those are the people that were that could afford to stay after sandy and every subsequent storm that has just taken bites out of their uh out of their properties and 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 uh raised the water table and flooded um uh the the sewage and wastewater uh and progressed to that, that problem even further um you know this is um this is 100 percent an environmental justice issue um yeah. and when we're when we talk about putting in a sewer um what folks, environmentalists and, and um, elected officials will say is, you know, uh, in, in the meantime, residents need to do their part and look into these nitrogen filtering systems like the one that Beth are putting in. But the, the process can be onerous. And if you don't have good access to um, financial support or you don't have good access to your elected officials for support or you don't have or you don't speak the language that all these materials are written in, um, you know, this is now an impossible task and your property is still dubbed the problem. Right. Um, and so it, it's interesting that as these storms continue and it makes me wonder after Sandy is when we thought about rebuilding, did we think about really rebuilding from the ground up or just putting back what was already there? And so um, it's not a matter of if, but when, when we get nailed again, you know, will uh, sewers and wastewater be part of that conversation for rebuilding and rebuilding equitably? Yeah, and and to to the to the issue about you know um, floodwater floodwaters rising, um, you know a lot of these new systems are are plastic, and they're replacing concrete. And you know the one I have, you know it has to be attached to concrete deadman to keep it f- from popping out of the ground. And um, uh, we have we've yet to see how they'll they'll fare in the long run with the rising water table out here. I'm not sure I'm not sure what the answer to that is. 
I'm curious. But the price has to come down on these things. It has if we to. Can, if we can digress for a second, you've gone through the process, and I don't want you to get too specific, but but in broad <laughs> strokes, did yeah. you find the process to, to get an IA system? I assume you were able to get some, some um, financial help with that because the town is encouraging that. Um, mm-hmm. Did you find the process onerous? Did, you, did it end up being more expensive than you expected? Is it what, what would you tell people who might be considering this? Um, it's, it's a lot more expensive than you'll, you'd expect at the moment. And that was the, the big sticker. It, it was a big sticker shock for me. Um, it's been about a year and a half of planning to get to this day. Um, and that was just, you know, getting the grants, uh, getting the permits, um, getting, getting those, getting the paperwork for the Southampton town rebate in order. And, you know, um, people will walk you through it, but then like, you don't, you don't find out that like the day before the trustees are calling saying you, you got to get that silt fence in and um, not the trustees, the environmental division. And, um, you know, I'm out there digging a hole um, and uh, making sure, making sure everything gets in, 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 in at the right time. Um, it's been it's, uh, one surprise after another for sure. It's, it's not a seamless process basically is what you're saying. It's not as easy as, Hey, we're going to sign up for this and it gets done and there are no wrinkles. You got to be prepared for some wrinkles. Yeah. I mean, the wrinkles are mostly, you know, to protect the environment uh, ostensibly. Uh, hopefully it is, they are protecting the environment, but the regulatory process is um, intense. It's it's intense, and maybe just for a, a moment of, of a little bit of fairness here, it's also a model. I mean, like there are yeah. communities across the U.S. that are copying our model and where we've gotten our model from, which is kind of like the Cape Cod region. Um, but there are folks that are copying our model, um, and while there are a lot of steps and a lot of processes and a lot of jurisdictions for those processes to occur in um, – I mean, that's also Long Island. There's like a layer of government for everything. Um, But as this program matures, hopefully it will streamline as well. I mean, it's still relatively new, um, although the impact, you know, that we've had on the environment um, is projected to just get worse. So hopefully I think it's streamlined fast. I think it's essential that it gets streamlined. I think this is an essential program. And I think getting more, I mean, my, my concern is that Beth is an environmentally conscious person who's willing to undertake this. Uh, We have to make this easier for more people uh, because it really will have an an enormous impact uh, if we can get more people to do it, but uh, it's got to be a process that people are willing to enter. Um, Yeah. I mean, when they started the Stony Brook Center for Clean Water Technology, they were talking about like having having these available for under ten thousand dollars. And I can tell you right now, what I'm doing is like four times that. Wow! Yeah, you'll get reimbursed for some of that, or is that non-reimbursed? Uh, I should be able to get reimbursed for. But you have so, to. You have to lay out the money. But you have to lay out the money up front, right? The county the county grant goes directly to the installer. The, whatever the town does, and, and this is only Southampton and East Hampton towns that are doing this, is a rebate that you have and to meet a lot of conditions. It's, yeah. it's important to note, it's difficult for a lot of people to, to make uh, sense out of that because it's not a, a step that you need to take generally if you have a septic tank. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's, and, and it's also nothing that's really going to improve the value of your house like some investment. If you put that kind of money into other things with your house, you get the money back with the value. And I'm not right. so sure there's been any proof that that's true. This is really, yeah. you, have to, you have to be doing it for the good of the community, the good of the environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I thought our system was failing when they dug up the old one. They found out that like there was a, a sag in the pipe that was making everything back up. And I have two perfectly good concrete rings there. And if we just fixed the pitch of the pipe, we would have been able to service it for a while. But um, you live and learn. Well, let me let me just thank you for undertaking it, Beth. I think it's yeah. important that people do that. So you're setting a standard, which is good. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Uh, with me today is J.D. Allen from WSHU, uh, Beth Young from the East End Beacon, and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. So uh, 
we had a story this week in our papers. Uh, the group for the East End is marking its 50th anniversary with a big gala coming up uh, next week, I believe, next weekend. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the group at 50 years, which is remarkable. But maybe we can talk a little bit about how and, and Beth, you've we've, we've been around for a couple of decades <laughs> and seen what the group has done. I, I, I really, you know, when you take a step back and think about what this region might look like without the group for the East End being there, uh, pushing uh, for environmental causes and, and for preservation. And, and, you know, they were instrumental in the Community Preservation Fund, but they've also fought just dozens and dozens and probably hundreds and hundreds of, of little battles uh, against development. Uh, the group has had an enormous impact on the way this region has developed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they, uh, they came about, you know, in, in the height of the environmental movement, which I guess was before I was born in the early 1970s, but not too long before. Um, I do also want to give a shout out to the North Fork Environmental Council, which is also celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And I think, you know, they've always been an all volunteer organization and had their ups and downs in membership over the years, but they've really been steadfast um, with the same kind of mission that the group for the East End has. And um, I think the group for the East End has been a little bit more effective because they've hired people who are real experts in this field. And that's one of the things Bob DeLuca was, was talking to me about, um, when we wrote about the, the 50th anniversaries, what, what they really wanted to do was have hire experts who would go head to head with any developer at, at a town, at a planning meeting and say, this is why you should consider the opposite of what you're considering. Um, and having that kind of expertise has really been what's made them so effective. You know, just have the right key people who really know what they're talking about. JD, you talked about the, the fact that the AI systems, the sewage systems, that what we're doing is sort of a model for other communities. The group's involvement, um, I think they both took, they took from other areas that were able to accomplish things as far as preservation and as far as the environment goes. And they were able to implement a lot of those things here. But now they've turned around and they're setting the pace for a lot of other communities with um, the success of the Community Preservation Fund and, and some other, you know, just all, this, all of the battles that they're fighting all the time. They've really, I think they're inspiring other communities. I think that's fair to say. Look, grassroots organizations like this, they fill in the gaps for services and programs that um, uh, officials can't or won't offer. And and hopefully that it's more of a question of dollars and resources than, you know, desire to, in this case, help the environment. But when you look at Group for the East End, you know, the work that they've done um, on the environment, I'm kind of a climate nerd here, but uh, the, the work that they've done for the environment it, it has been huge. I mean, you look at the way that they've assisted in rebounding the osprey population uh, to, um, like you mentioned, the, the work with the Community Preservation Fund. Um, it, it means that there is somebody in the room that says, like, like Beth just said, you know, guys, we might need to pause this plan and really think about it because here are some additional resources that, um, you know, I mean, towns and villages might not have had or might not have had access to or might not have the expertise to to obtain. Um, and and so, you know, they can help work and, and make their communities a better place. Denise, we got to put it into some context that when the group was founded 50 years ago, uh, the development pressures, especially they were focused on the South Fork to start with, and the development pressures back then, there really wasn't anything to counter them. They, they, they pretty much ruled the roost until the group came along and, and started to bring in, as, as someone mentioned, you know, some of the experts that could say, hey, we need to take another look at, at some of these proposals and what the long-term impact would be. Absolutely. And I think that um, one of the places or one of one of the phases at which groups like that have the most impact when they have a seat at the table, actually doing the community planning 
you know, being there when they when they develop the comprehensive plans and when they develop the zoning that rules, you know, like after that's all in place, there's really, uh, you know, only so much the citizens voice, even a, even a group as as um, well funded uh, as as expert expert as people with the group for what was a group of the South Fork and the group of the East End, you know, when all of that stuff is in place already, you've got a very limited area of operation. You know what I mean? So since they were formed, they've they've had that seat at the table, as as did the North Fork Environmental Council um, uh, at, you know, in master planning in Riverhead and South Old Town. So, you know, that's really, really critical. And so you end up with better community planning. I think, you know, it's not shaped by development interest. It's shaped by p- people with an interest in the environment, with an interest in sustainable communities and, you know, limiting traffic and quality of life. You know, most developers are, are you know, they do their thing, they get their money, they sell their land, they're out, you know, on to the next thing. So that, I it's, think, is not to be underestimated. It's it's what interests do they have? You know, d- developers they're there mm-hmm. because they own a business. There, uh, it is a corporate mission. You know, um, government their interest is of hopefully of the people, but it's also to the letter of the of the law and regulations that they have or to make new. You have an organization like Group for the East End, and they're interest is the east end the people who live there um and when there is no hopefully no alternative motives um really um significant work can be done um in in helping all of those parties residents developers and uh government you know make informed choices i think and you can just look around and see the the impact they've had go ahead i'm sorry one of the things that the group has been kind of doing a little, not quietly, but like just sort of lending a hand with lately, and this has been really impressive to watch, the North Fork really didn't have a lot of civic associations historically. And in the last couple of years, people have, they're, they're forming new civic associations. There's one in Southold, there are ones uh, in the process of forming in, in Greenport and um, in Kutchog, and and the one in downtown Riverhead. Um, and these, the, the group has really been like lending their support to help these people who are really engaged, passionate community people um, to, to help them understand the state and environmental quality review act, how they enter, how they can be an effective voice at, um, at town meetings. And this is really just like, it's a 10 Xing what, uh, what they can do on their own to have, you know, this army of engaged people who are part of these separate civic associations. And that's, that's a really powerful thing. And it emphasizes the, the regional aspect of what they do. They are very focused yeah. on the North Fork now as well, no question. So happy yeah. 50th to uh, the group. So I want to I wanted to have a conversation too about another story we had this week. And JD, I know this is a, a topic that's of particular interest to you, and that's Sugarloaf Hill in Shinnecock Hills. Um, our story this week is sort of an update on what's going on there, but what's going on there is remarkable. The 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 Shinnecock Nation working with the town has been able to reacquire a lot of the land in uh, that part of Shinnecock Hills. Uh, Sugarloaf Hill was was just a very important burial site for the tribe historically. Um, and over the years, a lot of that land was developed, uh, sometimes in sort of sketchy form. Um, but they have been able through perseverance and patience to start taking it back. And we have this remarkable photo on the front page of the Eastern edition this week of members of the Graves Warrior Society from the Shinnecock Nation standing on the rubble of a house that was torn down. The town purchased that land, tore the house down, and now it's going to be returned to the nation as a burial ground. And they're going to begin repatriating remains from museums and research facilities and burying them uh, in a proper fashion. JD, it's been an amazing success story. I mean, it 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 really it's it's remarkable. I mean, talk about uh, you know, you used the word patience. I I think that um, patience is probably the wrong word for um, for just decades and centuries of of trying to right an injustice. Um, you know, they 
the tribe has been working very diligently with whoever has been in charge um, to to reclaim land that um, they never surrendered, that was just clawed away. And so Sugarloaf is an amazing um, is an amazing victory for the tribe, but it's a slice of of a of a of a history that um, is very sensitive, and the land is very sensitive to them, as you mentioned. Um, you know the 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 drive to get control over this land again was because of a um, an unearthed burial site, and. Um, you know, beneath one of how many Hamptons mansions that are out there. Um, and, you know, through the demolition of this, uh, of this mansion and the reclaiming of this land, the, the tribes reported that they've used ground penetrating radar and have found potentially thousands of more graves, um, in this area. Um, and so it really makes you question, you know, the legacy uh, of of how the Hamptons formed and and the role that the tribe has played. Um, you know, their uh, their territory had expanded um, throughout this region that um, we hold very dear um as as a as a as a wonderful place to live but also as a tourism spot um uh, but it was all of these things to this tribe first and so as we learn more about this property um we should question you know what does that mean for the surrounding area and what does that mean for what do we do when when, not if, second time so far this show I'm saying that, when we find more of um, our ancestral past. Um, New York State is one of three states that does not have a burial protection um, law on the books. And the Senate and the Assembly this past week has passed legislation that would um, set that into motion with a state commission to review um, and make rules and recommendations to what happens uh, in the future. And so that is sitting on Governor Hochul's desk and, you know, we'll see how that pans out. Um, but uh, the process to reclaim Sugarloaf Hill was made up. You know, it, it was the town, um, yes, working with the, the tribe after decades and centuries of, of, of calling out saying, you know, this is a sensitive piece of land. Um, and hopefully, you know, the process in the future will be more swift and more equitable. I mean, there are many people involved in that effort, but I think everybody would agree that uh, Rebecca Genia um, is really at the heart of that struggle and has been for 25 years. And her, her perseverance is, is just a model, uh, I think, for, for getting anything done. But obviously her passion. Uh, and, and I just think it's very, it's very comforting to see that it's seeing some results very slowly. And it's not nearly at the pace, I think, that, that uh, certainly Becky would like to see. But I think it's happening. And I think the fact that it's happening at all is such testimony um, to, to her efforts and, and other members of the nation for that. So if I can just steal a moment, um, because this is uh, called Behind the Headlines and it has great reporters that are, you know, talking about the news. Uh, WSHU, we've got a, a new reporter coming on. Um, it's uh, our first ever Report for America Corps member um, named Janice Roman, who's going to be starting in the next month. Um, and she is going to be solely focusing on our indigenous communities in our region. Um, and so I, um, I'm sure she would be happy to come on the show and talk to more about reporting from those communities. That would be wonderful. That's and great. I, yeah. it's very needed. No question about it. Absolutely. Um, before we, uh, we have a couple of minutes left and Denise, I want to talk a little bit about um, guns are very much in the headlines uh, in the last week or two in the last yeah. 
decade or so, but certainly in the last week or two. But um, there's a there's a new issue that's arisen in your territory regarding guns, right? Yeah, well, um, in, the, in with the backdrop of everything that's happened and the uh, the flurry of um, high school students being arrested for making allegedly making threats, including uh, two in two days in Riverhead. Um, and we had a middle school student in uh, in uh, West, West Hampton, Hampton Beach. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with that backdrop. Uh, and probably like the worst possible timing for them, um, a, a company is looking to open a shooting range and gun uh, retail gun shop, basically at um, at a facility at a, an, a vacant building on Elton Street in Riverhead, which is um, kind of on the edge of uh, or it's a, a mixed neighborhood. There's a lot of residential uses. There's residential uses right around it. There are also some commercial uses. Uh, this building was a manufacturing and warehousing building for years and years, um, has been vacant for several years. And um, this company, I think, is relocating or looking to relocate from Gabreski Airport. Um, and people in the neighborhood are not happy about it. Um, they don't want it there. Um, they're, you know, referencing all of the, you know, what's going on in the country and the mass shootings, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's, as you can imagine, a pretty controversial uh, application. They have a, a they had a site plan application pending before the planning board. Um, and there was supposed to be a public hearing last night. A bunch of people showed up and um, the uh, applicant asked for the hearing to be adjourned after the planning department apparently uh, told them that, hey, you know, we didn't realize you were uh, going to have retail gun sales here. That was not in the application, and um, we were that we were not aware of that, and that's different. And you know, you need to amend your application, which is kind of weird. I mean, the planner said this at the meeting last night because, and the reason that's kind of weird is uh, on April twenty first, when they first discussed this application, the man who's you know a principal of this business said that straight up, like at at that meeting. Um, and, um, you know, we interviewed him about it. We interviewed the planning department about it. Um, we questioned the zoning, uh, you know, like there are some real questions about whether the zoning allows shooting ranges, let alone gun shops, retail, um, of any kind in that district. So, um, I, the planning board, uh, the planning department anyway, seems to have had some serious second thoughts about this and they tabled it. Um, and so the hearing wasn't held. He said they were going to uh, they were asked to amend their application and we'll see what happens. But um, you know, people from the new civic were there uh, in force. And, um, you know, just a reminder that all all national stories are local. Ultimately, yeah. um, the, yeah. you have Unfortunately, these things, too. Yeah, the way they come yeah. up. So. We are uh, out of time for this week. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Denise Civiletti uh, from Riverhead Local, Beth Young of East End Beacon, and J.D. Allen from WSHU. Uh, terrific panel today, guys. Thanks. This was Behind the Headlines. We'll be back next week with more conversations.